I'm going to ask you to start with me in a different spot today, and we'll end up in 1 Peter, God willing. But if you'll turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11, and if you're using one of our pew Bibles, please feel free. That's on page 1008, Hebrews 11 this morning is where I want to start. I don't know if you have this experience when you're trying to read through the Bible from cover to cover. I have some children right now who are attempting that once again. And they have often tried, and they get to Leviticus, and they have that common malady of challenge of, how do I get through this? Um, but we were discussing that read-through uh, recently, and one of the things that I thought about was this moment in Genesis 3 where Adam and Eve sin against God, and they don't die. Because if you're expecting them to just go horizontal right away, that's kind of a typical expectation when you're reading through the Bible, if you eat the fruit, you're going to what? You're going to die, and they don't go horizontal. So the question comes up, well, why didn't they die? Well, the answer, of course, is, is they began to progressively die. They died spiritually, and they began to die physically. But they were removed from the garden, you'll recall, and after they were removed from the garden, things continued, but they were different. Remember this? So after they were removed from the garden, there was a cherubim set up there that guarded the garden lest they would try to return. And we're told in the scriptures that Adam and Eve continued and they had children. Their children built cities. They used metal. They made music. There were weddings. There were anniversaries. There were childbirths. There were all kinds of things. Cities were built, as I mentioned. But it was all what theologians called East of Eden. It took place after the fall. And, and some have called that east of Eden, the, that, that time period after the fall until the return of Christ, time of exile for God's people. And 1 Peter, that's the theme. I've mentioned that to you, that God's people are really dual citizens. They're citizens of this world, but they're looking for a city whose builder and maker is God, yes? So that's the theme, and these suffering Christians that Pastor Matt so ably helped us with last week at the conclusion of chapter 4. Um, they are being encouraged as they go through persecution for the name of Christ, for the sake of Christ, to be steadfast. But I want you to see this passage in Hebrews because it mentions the same terminology in verse 13 of chapter 11. Listen to the words of Scripture. These all died in faith. This is passage has been called the, the hall of faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a what? A city. So we are exiles. We are not at home, but we're told to live and to be salt and light in this world that we live in. Now turn back, or turn over, please, to 1 Peter chapter 5 again. I wanted to set that context to remind you that this letter is written to little house churches that are spread abroad in ancient Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. They're Gentile Christians, written to by Peter, and having a letter like this from probably the closest friend that the Lord Jesus had, minus John, the apostle, on the planet during his earthly ministry, 
is so helpful for us to think in terms of not only what he wrote us, but what happened in these interactions that Peter had with Jesus. And in chapter 5, I want us to consider over the next couple weeks, verses 1 to 4, because what Peter now is going to do is he's going to say, while you're on exile, you need to realize the importance of being with the people who are also in exile. And he calls them a flock. So he's going to use terminology from the herd. He's going to use some ovine terminology. And so what I'd like to do this morning is I would like to fleece some facts from this text. Okay, that was an attempt. Maybe we can muse on some mutton of, of the scriptures or we can bleat out some Bible print. Okay, anyway, verse 1, I can see it's a fail. But I knew you would be like this. The Sunday after Thanksgiving is always blah. So you are living up to that. I'm trying to be humorous, and that's always a challenge. Look at verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you, look for this herd language, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, if you remember last week, Pastor Matt took us through the end of chapter four, right? And we were taught about judgment needs to start where? At the house of God. Do you remember that text? And so it is this, as if the Holy Spirit reminds the Apostle Peter, that for judgment to start in the house of God before it comes to all the unbelievers, he's reminded that those relationships in the flock need to be also analyzed, and particularly the leaders of the church. And there are particular sins that your leaders, your elders, I'm one of them, will struggle with. It will teach you how to pray for them. It will help you be alert to the possibility of these particular sins they could fall prey to. But I want you to see also that he's saying that for judgment to first begin at the house of God or the family of God, he's going to use this herding sheep terminology and he's going to say we're a flock. And he's going to say that that judgment needs to start here. But it's also a reminder of how important the church is. I've mentioned this to you before. I think there are a variety of metaphors. I don't think I know. There are a variety of metaphors in the New Testament about the church. We're called a body, right? We're called a building. We're called a family. We're called a bride. Did I mention that? And we're also called a flock. And so here we're called a flock. And he's reminding us that if you're going to be focused on how do I survive living in exile... The importance of your local flock meeting becomes vital. And your expectations of what's going to happen in the flock are really important. Sometimes we misunderstand or we don't understand or we have wrong expectations about what flock life is like. And so Peter is going to delve into that in verses 1 to 4. So here would be a big picture of these four verses that I want to take two weeks to deal with. It would be this. Stick with your flock, support your under-shepherds, and eagerly await the chief shepherd to come back. So, so these four verses are going to say, stick with your flock, support your under-shepherds, and all of us need to be looking forward eagerly to the chief shepherd coming back. 
With that in mind, I want to give you a few of these um, principles that I would like for us to fleece this morning. And here's a simple one that is not profound, but it's found in our text. All Christians are sheep. Can you say that with me? All Christians are sheep. Now, I understand that particularly in our day, in our time, and perhaps even in our state, being called a sheep is not something that's complimentary, but it never really has been. But I want us to understand that the scriptures use this description, this metaphor, to say this is what the people of God are. This is an Old Testament metaphor as well as a New Testament. But I want you to see, first of all, before Peter addresses them as sheep and he addresses the elders as under shepherds, look what he says. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Peter is going to say, I want to address you as a fellow elder, but look what he says about himself. I was a fellow witness to what? To the sufferings of Christ. Let's not miss this. Matt took us to the text last week to show us where Peter's greatest fall was when he said he would never deny the Lord, and then he denied the Lord three times. And here he's saying, I was a witness to the sufferings of Christ. Now, if he'd said I was a witness to the resurrection, we would have all said that's exactly the powerful message that we see in Acts 1 and 2 and 3 and 4. We would have said that was a witness to the truth. If he said I was a witness to the transfiguration, which he was a witness to, when the Lord's clothing actually turned that beautiful white, like a fuller soap, I love that passage, um, like a fuller soap can make a garment. And he says that, that could have been something he said I witnessed. And he does in 2 Peter but here he says, I was a witness to the sufferings of Christ. Don't miss this. This is really soul food for every elder, but for every sheep. Is that Peter is saying, my worst moment. I was a witness and I denied the Lord, but I've been restored. And now I am an elder. Do you remember when that restoration took place? Stay with me for a moment. All Christians are sheep. Say that with me. All Christians are sheep. In John 21... John, Peter has gone fishing, but Jesus comes to the shore, makes some breakfast, and he says, come over and dine. And that was the moment where he publicly restored Peter. He had this little interrogation. He said, Peter, do you love me? And he said, you know I love you. And what did he say? Feed my sheep or feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Feed my... Peter, do you love me? Feed my... He was reminding Peter that he is going to be restored even though it was his darkest, most shameful moment. He had repented, he was restored, and now he was going to be an elder, an apostle, someone who got to feed the sheep. I read this text and I'm like, oh, this is soul food. Because the Lord just doesn't use perfect elders. He uses elders who have blown it, sometimes very publicly. And he restores them. And he places them again in ministry and I want you to notice these two words. They come up twice in our text. So I exhort the elders among you. Peter's saying, I'm, I'm one of you. So here's the thing. He says, I am a witness to the sufferings of Christ, and I've been restored, and I'm actually looking forward to the day when I'm going to share with his glory when he returns. But back to our first point. All Christians are sheep. Can you say that with me? All Christians are sheep. There's a play on words here in verse 2. He says that we should shepherd the flock of God that is among you. That word shepherd is a verb. It's the only time it's used as a verb in the New Testament. 
and he's saying that we need to poimeon or poimeo, we need to shepherd the flock, which is also from the root word poimeo or poimain. So he's essentially saying this, shepherd the sheep of God. So he's calling all believers what? Sheep. Now this is not a new metaphor. The Lord Jesus says in John chapter 10 that he's the good shepherd. He calls his sheep by name and what do they do? They follow him. How do you know if you're a sheep? Do you follow Christ? Have you repented of your sins and placed faith in the good shepherd? That's how you know you're a sheep. But we're referred to as sheep. We're actually referred to as sheep in Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have what? Gone astray and turned everyone to his own way. Now again, it might not be your favorite metaphor, but it is the choice metaphor that the Lord gives us as sheep. And before I describe sheep anymore, I hope that you will find comfort in this, that our Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory, became a what? A sheep. He became a lamb. He was the lamb of God that actually bore away our sin so that we could become sheep of this fold or of this flock. But again, the metaphor is not very flattering. I was thinking we wouldn't want to <coughs> excuse me, use as a, our, our mascot a sheep. I don't know if any football team has chosen to have the sheep as their mascot. I mean, you see great, strong things like patriots, right? <laughs> okay, you knew I was going to go there. Or an eagle, or a bear, or a giant. But you just don't see a football team having a sheep as their mascot. Maybe you can find one. Please don't hit me afterwards about this football team that has the sheep as their mascot. We don't use it for our coinage in the United States. Now, if you're from New Zealand, you maybe you'll do that. But here we use buffalo, and we use eagles, and... And you probably don't have your house guarded with a sign that says, beware of the lamb, okay? It's beware of the dog, right? But this picture is one of not just weakness, but it's naivety. It is the picture of people who without proper guidance will go astray. Again, it's a humbling picture, but Psalm 23 actually uses the same imagery where the sheep is actually bragging on who bragging on his shepherd he says the lord is my shepherd i have no need of want when i'm cast down he lifts me back up he restores my soul maybe you're like our family and you read psalm 100 together as a family for thanksgiving and there in that passage it, we're told that we're the sheep of his pasture he, he is our shepherd so rather than looking at this only as a negative metaphor and perhaps reading back into it our own cultural understanding of being called a sheep. I hope you'll embrace this understanding that being a sheep means that you have a shepherd and your chief shepherd is Jesus, the good shepherd. But there are moments where a sheep is actually described in elevated good terms. And only time we see that sheep are described in, in noble terms is when they're following the shepherd. See, when we're following the Lord Jesus, and he speaks of this in John chapter 10, the only time we are expressed as sheep in the good light is when we're following close to our shepherd. So, say it with me again. All Christians are what? Sheep. All Christians are sheep. Secondly, Christian sheep are part of a flock. This is really simple for after Thanksgiving, right? Say it with me. All Christian sheep are part of a flock, or Christian sheep are part of a flock. Now, notice the word flock is mentioned twice here. He says that 
They are supposed to shepherd the flock of God. And then you'll notice in verse number three, being examples to the flock. Now, the flock is going to remind us that we are not just individual sheep that are part of the grand flock, but there are local flocks that he says that are going to be identified. Do you notice this? He says that you have a flock that these elders, these under shepherds are going to oversee. Now, we live in a very individualistic society, don't we? We pull up our, ourselves by our own bootstraps, but that is not Christianity. Christianity reminds us that we come to faith in Christ individually by repenting of our sins and placing faith in Jesus, but then we're placed into a community. We're placed into a flock. And so what I'm looking at, like it or not, is a local flock. Those that have been placed in faith in Christ by turning from their sins and trusting in Jesus, but now they've been placed into community. This isn't true of every religion. I mean, if you become a Buddhist or you become a Hindu, you can have your own journey with God without ever becoming part of a community, a flock. But one of the unique things about Christianity is that we aren't just saved individually. We're saved individually, but then placed into a flock, into a body into the bride of christ and so that's described here and he says these believers these sheep are placed into these local communities of christian believers they're going to walk together as sheep they're going to walk together as a flock what does that mean though if individual sheep are placed immediately into a flock and we know that individual sheep which all of us are still struggle with individual sins, what should we expect when they all get together? You know where I'm going with this, right? You know, sometimes I meet folks that have newly been saved and they're contemplating becoming a part of a local church and becoming a member of this local church or churches that I've been able to be pastor of in the past or maybe someone who hasn't been a member of a church for a long time and sometimes you have to say, I just want to give you a reality check before you sign up. <laughs> you are joining a flock of individual sheep that have issues. And if you think that this is like some spiritual utopia where everybody's just going around with halos and no one ever says anything or does anything or thinks anything that's, that's wicked or vile, then you don't need to join this church. You see, there's an understanding that authentic community will always reflect collectively the struggles that we have individually. Now, we know this to be true in our own families, don't we? We're not surprised when sinful activity comes from the siblings, the children, the spouse, even if they claim to know Christ and we believe they're genuinely born again. We're not surprised when sin dribbles out. Why should we be surprised when that happens in a local church? Because what happens in a local church is this, as has been well said, the church is not this wonderful museum of saints. It's actually for a hospital of sinners that are in recovery. Now we should be growing and changing and becoming more godly, more tender, showing more deference, becoming more and more immune to offenses as we learned earlier, that we have love that covers a multitude of sins, but yet... These flocks are made up of sinners, <laughs> saved by God's grace, but filled with cosmetic defects. That's really important when we think about 
God as a sheep has placed me and you in a flock. Secondly, this will mean that all flocks include difficult people. You don't need to shout amen right here. But all flocks, because authentic community will have people who have reflect their individual struggles collectively, you're going to have difficult people inside the church. And that leads us to authentic community that God puts together as a flock. God is the one who gathered us. We didn't choose this flock. You say, well, I remember the time I joined that church. I did choose that flock. Well, there's a certain truth to that. But I want you to notice something. In verse 2, he says, shepherd the flock of who? Whose flock is this? Do you see it in your text? Okay, I'm sorry. Look at your scriptures where you know I'm not making it up. Verse 2, shepherd the flock of who? Okay, so this is God's flock. But sometimes I get a little lathered up when people say, your church, and they refer to me. Or they refer to the other pastors as your church, or the elders, your church. This is actually not my church at all. Whose church is this? God's. Now, now I do understand, I respect the, the sense, I'll say this is my church, and I'll use that possessive pronoun to say, this is my local flock. I mean, we're, 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 we're the same people, okay? We're in this together. And I hope you refer to this local church that way. That's, that's my church, that's my flock. But, but when it comes to ownership, he's saying that this putting together of the flock, it happened by who? God. This is really important. You probably said this, I know this Thanksgiving was different than perhaps others that we've enjoyed, but have you ever said this? You know, you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your what? Your family. <laughs> I mean, you're just stuck. You're stuck. Now, most of the time that's good, but you choose your friends, you don't choose your family, you don't choose your flock. God placed us side by side of one another. We've mentioned this in weeks past that we can choose our friends, we can't choose our family. These are people that God placed next to you. So the way that we react and interact when we find that there are vast cosmetic defects among the flock is going to either grow you in godliness and Christ-likeness or it's going to stunt your growth. I mean, because there are a variety of reactions when somebody finds out this is no utopia. You say, well, I knew that when I signed up. Praise God. <laughs> But if you didn't, you're going to find it out. And how do you react? Do you run away? Do you take your proverbial toys and go home? Do you hit the eject button as soon as you have a relational tiff? Or do you forgive? Do you work through? As we looked at a couple weeks ago, do you have that kind of love that stretches, that really works at reconciliation, that moves towards those that have hurt you rather than running away from them? See, what this will do is produce in your heart the ability to care and forgive and work through. And that's what flocks are supposed to do. I want to recommend this book to you. I should have had some copies at our bookstall, and I don't. But you can get a real cheap copy for $2.99 um, on your Kindle. But it is called um, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23 by Philip Keller. Some of you have read that little, little book. It's so good. Because most of us city slickers don't have any clue all this terminology about sheep and herds and all of that kind of thing. But one of the things that he talks about in that book is that on, in Psalm 23, when he talks about the sheep lying down by still waters, he says there are four things that will keep sheep from lying down. He said it's always true. 
they will not lie down if these things aren't true. He says, number one, if they're fearful, they're agitated, they will not lie down. So they have to be in full trust and confidence in their shepherd. Secondly, if there's friction in between the sheep. I mean, you do know sheep bite. <laughs> they do. Sheep can bite. So when sheep are biting one another, there can be friction. And when friction's happening, the sheep aren't lying down. Third is when there are parasites or bugs or insects that are in their wool. When they're aggravated and irritated, they won't lie down. And finally, when they're hungry, they will not lie down. Because they ruminate when they're full. So they lie down and they ruminate. And I won't get into the rumination process. But that's what sheep do. I love that picture because it helps lay out for us even more so, what does it look like to be in a flock? Well, what it looks like to be in a flock is all of the same individual struggles that you have as a believer, expect for those to be projected collectively when we come together. Why would Peter be telling these people this? Understand that we're probably less exposed to what they were exposed to. These were house churches, small little house churches. According to the book of Acts, they met together a lot more than we're accustomed to. I mean, we're one Sunday and done. One day a week. And now we have three services, and so our interaction is very limited. Not enough to really get too aggravated with one another. But if you were meeting and studying New Testament apostles' doctrines and prayers like they were, and always fellowshipping like they were, you would tend to find out the cosmetic defects of your brother and sister more starkly than we do. So understand, Peter's saying to them, all believers are sheep, and all sheep have been placed in flocks. That flock is going to be a sanctifying institution, a sanctifying space for you. Those people that are most difficult, as someone has rightly said, are going to be like heavenly sandpaper to take away, some of them more coarse than others, the defects that are unlike Christ. Third, I want you to see this. Pastors are sheep too. <laughs> now we're going to spend more next week where we really get arrested by this passage. I'm talking about your elders because that's primarily who's addressed here. But imagine this. They're getting addressed in the audience of the congregation. That's how these letters are written. And so now I want you to see that pastors are sheep too. There are three major sins, and we're going to unpack these next week, that pastors and elders can be prone to struggle with. It's going to help you in praying for them that they will not fall and succumb to these, but here they are. One is sloth, laziness, or lack of vision. Notice this. He says, I, I challenge the elders among you to shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly. In other words, they can lose their drive and vision, and they can just be going through the routine. Going through the motions without any heart for the flock. He says there's a desire for dishonest gain. They can become chasers of money, chasers of wealth, chasers of position. And then he says they can dominate. They can become people who are always trying to have a lust for power. And they can abuse their power by lording it over the sheep and becoming very dictatorial and domineering. These are the kinds of things you ought to pray that your elders will not succumb to, but what should it tell you? They're sheep too. Now, how do sheep among the sheep, and I want you to notice they're sheep too by these two times that these phrases are used. Look at verse 1. So I exhort the elders, what are the next two words? Among you. And then he says, shepherd, in verse 2, the flock of God that is what? 
Do you see it with me? That is what? Among you. So, so these shepherds, they're called to a higher standard, according to Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3, but they're called out from the, the body. Remember in Titus where Paul tells Titus to go to Crete and, 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 and appoint elders there? These are people among the flock, and they are people who are supposed to be qualified according to, these men are supposed to be qualified according to these standards of characteristics. But what this should tell us is they're just sheep too. They're going to be under shepherds who are supposed to be examples to the flock. They're called to a higher standard. But let's never forget, we're among you. Sometimes I think that there's too high of, of, of um, not respect, that's not the word I'm looking for, maybe expectation that church members can have about their elders or their pastors. It's as though they think that there's some type of supernatural sanctification that they have. It's like, it's like you've got coach in the airplane and then you've got first class. And so like pastors and elders and spiritual leaders, they're kind of like the first class sanctified ones. That's not true. All of the same struggles of the flesh and the world and the devil that you go through, we go through. And he's reminding them, you need to realize that these are proclivities. These are temptations for these, these elders. But he says they're supposed to be examples to the flock. They are called to a higher standard. I'm not weaseling out of that this morning, and we certainly are going to unpack that next week. This is supposedly a true story. I, I kind of validated it, but... My understanding is there was a flight that had a layover, extended layover in Sacramento, California. And they, the, the host told them, the, um, the lady there said all of them could deplane into the terminal for the next couple of hours and then they would call for them to come back on. They could stretch their legs, get some lunch or, or dinner, whatever time it was. And they all deplaned except for one man who was blind and he had a, a seeing eye dog. And the pilot evidently knew him. His name was Daniel, according to the story, and he had flown on that flight on many occasions. And so he said to Daniel, he said, do you want to get out and stretch your legs? He said, no. He said, but it'd be great if, you, if you'd take my dog for a walk in the terminal. And can you imagine this? And I guess, according to the story, the pilot really hammed it up and put some, some sunglasses on. And he comes into the terminal while people are waiting with that seeing eye dog and sunglasses on. Now, my understanding, there were quite a few people that were supposed to get back on that flight who went and changed their ticket. They were like, we're not interested in this. Why? You don't want somebody flying the airplane who can't see, right? That's the same standard that your leaders should have. And according to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, if we're not loving our wives as Christ loved the church, if we're not leading our families in godliness, if we're bound to money and bound to wine, if we're brawlers, if we're people who love to fight and argue and be embroiled in anger, then we're disqualified because we're not being examples to the flock. We're not showing them, you follow me as I follow Christ. But I don't want you to miss this. Your pastors, your shepherds are what? Sheep too. But I want to finish with this. And then we're going to come and unpack again, I promise, next week. But notice how he ends it. He says, all of these under-shepherds should be looking forward to the return of who? The chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. Understand this, that all of us elders are simply under-shepherds who are pointing towards the chief shepherd, looking forward to the day when he gives out his rewards. 
But I want you to understand that God, the Son, Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd, the good shepherd, designed the church. He founded the church. He's building the church. And its purpose is to meet the needs of sheep. I don't want us to miss the the importance of the local gathering of this flock every Lord's Day. For you to have yourself cast and to be brought back up. Also in Philip Keller's book, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23, he talks about my soul is restored, he restores my soul. And the picture there is being a a sheep being cast. And evidently a, a sheep is cast when they lay down, they're kind of overweight, and they lay down in a divot, and they're kind of rolling over, and before long, the center of gravity has moved in such a way that they can't get back over without the shepherd coming and restoring them and helping turn them back over. Do you know that this ought to be happening while we're in exile, that every Lord's Day you come, your family comes, and we hear pastoral prayers, and we read scripture, and we sing songs together, and then your pastor comes up here and preaches over time. He goes longer than he's supposed to go. Don't look now, and I've gone a few minutes over. And and that happens. All of that is supposed to be used by the chief shepherd to restore your soul. That's the importance of the church gathered. This is a means of grace that the chief shepherd designed. This is not some social club that we decided that would be a cool idea. And we'll meet together on Sundays three times. Wouldn't that be neat? No, the chief shepherd designed this. And the question we ought to ask as believers is, are we seeing that regular restoration? Is your soul cast down right now? Or do you find yourself leaving the gathered flock on Sundays with a soul that's been restored, that's been recharged and rejuvenated? That's God's design. That's God's design for the flock. And it's God's design for us as we serve him here. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the practical teaching and help from the scriptures and lord we confess we are exiles we're strangers we're aliens this world is not our home we're passing through we're looking for a city whose builder and maker you are and we pray that we would always value the importance of the flock the local church as the means of grace to help restore our souls and lift us up so that we might serve you better And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand.